Check. If y'all can hear me. All right. I hope y'all been having a great morning so far. I'm super blessed to be back with you guys um, just a week after I was here last time. I'm very excited for this, uh, specifically for this morning, but especially for this day. Um, this will be the first time I'll be spending the whole day with you guys. I'll be at evening service as well, and I'll be providing the message for that. So please, prayers that that goes well. Um, I've never really done a full service uh, morning and evening, so prayers would be appreciated. Uh, but I'm super grateful to be back here with you guys. And I pray that this sermon goes well. <laughs> Matthew 28, 18 through 20. If you want to turn there, you can. It's not going to be where we're at, but Matthew 28, 18 through 20 is where I want to start with. Some of you might have this verse memorized by heart, but I just thought I'd read it for us as we start. 18 through 20. It reads, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them, all to, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The director of AIM, Corey Burns, posed this question to us many, many times, and it's still something I like to think about today. When it comes to your final words, I, I want you guys to put yourself in the, the perspective and the position that you're on your deathbed, whether that may be in the hospital or your own house or wherever that may be, and you're surrounded by your loved ones, um, whether that be your family or your friends or whoever it may be. And I want you guys to think about that. As you think about that, what are the final words you'd like to leave them with? Maybe some of you have thought about this before. I've definitely thought about it. Um, but you would want those words to be pretty impactful. It might go along the lines of, thank you so much for all that you've done. Thank you so much for loving me, even when I wasn't perfect. I want to be incredibly grateful for their friendship, the relationships, the memories. And those are all really important, especially since they'll be your final words to them. And so you would say that your last words to someone is something you might, that you see as precious, important. That's kind of the same situation here in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It's Jesus' final words, and he could have said anything he wanted to. He was surrounded by people he loved. He was surrounded, surrounded by his apostles, many disciples that he traveled with. And he could have said stuff like, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for following me. Thank you so much for blessing me. Thank you for the love that you've shown me. And I believe that he still loved them, and he was grateful for their time. But for his final words before he ascended up to heaven, he wasn't on his deathbed. He had died and rose, but he was going to go up to heaven. He wasn't going to see them for a long time. But he decided to leave them with these words, which was, Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. The name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Teaching them all that I've commanded you. Some versions say, Observe all that I commanded you, and I'll be with you always to the end of the age. His final words to us the things he wanted to leave us with, something he saw as so important to leave us with, was this mission, this co-mission for us to do. And in that mission, we see he's like, I want you to go teach what I've commanded you. And a lot of us have seen that. Every Sunday we come, we come here to church, wherever that may be, and we see a preacher. We'll go to Bible class and there'll be someone teaching. Or you might see people out in the streets door knocking, evangelizing. And those things are important. We're called to do that. We're commissioned by God to do that, to teach, preach, and evangelize. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a vital part of this of this passage. But I want to pose the question, what about the times that you're not teaching and preaching? What about the times you're at the grocery store or the times you're at work or the times you're at home um, at the dinner table with your kids and your family or maybe you're babysitting or whatever you may be? What about those times you're not at church? 
or at some youth event or some conference. How can we still show the world, how can uh, show the world Jesus' love and how can we still follow this mission that we were given, even if we're not teaching and preaching? If I had the energy to teach and preach 24-7, I would love to have that. But unfortunately, God gave us limits. I cannot be up here all day and all night. Um, if I could, I'm sure a lot of us would. But we don't. We can't. And so when we're not doing that, what are we doing? The question I want to ask you guys is, what example are we setting when we're not teaching and preaching? What examples are we setting when we're not at church? And with that being said, our main passage today will be in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. If you'll turn with your Bibles there to Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And as you're turning there, I thought I'd give you some context on the book of Titus, or rather I'd say, or I should rather say the letter of Titus. Titus is a letter written from Paul to Titus. Titus is someone that Paul was someone that Paul was mentoring. Um, in verse 4 of chapter 1, we see it says, and let endurance have its per- Wait, no, excuse me, this is James. I'm in the wrong book. Excuse me. Right here. In Titus... Chapter 1, verse 4, it says, To Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God, the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. In the beginning of that verse, he says, my true child in common faith. And with that, with that statement, we can make the assumption that Titus and Paul had this relationship. They had a decent relationship, a close relationship. It was someone, Titus was, Paul was someone that Titus looked, looked up to as a mentor. And in all of chapter 1, we see that there's the introduction that Paul gives but for, from, first, from verse 5 and on, it talks about the qualifications for elders. That's what Titus has established already in its first chapter. And going into that in chapter 2, we read this in verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Verse 4, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Verse 6, likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourselves to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignifying. Sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. I don't know about you what, what your version says, but I have the New American Standard Version. And right before we start chapter 2, it has, a bit of a, it has a little subtitle. And a lot of our Bibles have these whenever we're starting certain passages. But my subtitle, I don't know what yours says, but mine says this, uh, beginning uh, right before chapter 2. It says, Duties of the Older and Younger. Duties of the older and younger. So what's a duty? When you, say, when you hear someone say, I'm on duty, or this is your duty to do this, what do you think of? What are things that, what, what, how would you define that word? When I was studying, um, I kind of came up with this, with this definition when I, when I thought about the word duty. It's something that you are responsible to do. A task or action that we are required to perform. An example of that can be growing up, I'm sure many of us had chores to do. I know growing up, every Monday and Thursday was my time to do the dishes. I had to go home after school, either unload the dishes, or if I was lucky, I could just load the dishes, just take what was in the dishwasher and put it there and start it. It was an easy day. 
Um, but sometimes I had to unload and then reload everything. And it, at the time, it felt like such a hassle. Of us had other chores we had to do, and it's something our parents told us, hey, it's your duty to do this. this is, uh, we are requiring you to do this for us. Other examples we can think of uh, is police officers, those who enforce the law. Um, their duty is to protect us and to uphold that law. Um, other fun examples I like to think of is uh, the superhero Spider-Man. Um, I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with that. Uh, a very famous catchphrase from that movie is, with great power comes great responsibility, and that's kind of... Spider-Man's duty as a hero, that's kind of his mantra he tries to carry out with him. Because of the power he holds, he wants to hold it with great responsibility, and that's his duty to protect those who need saving. And so, we're familiar with this. A duty is something that we're almost required to do. And that's kind of the perspective I want us to see um, as we're reading this passage. It's our duty to do these things. We are required to do these things. And that's, it's in the same way. And in, the, and in this passage, we see a lot of things mentioned, a lot of different things that we're supposed to do. In the very beginning of the, of the passage, older men are required to be temperate. We are to be dig, you're to be dignified. You're, you're to be sound in faith, it says in verse 2. Likewise, older women are not to be reverent in their behavior. You have to, you're not to be gossips. You're not to be addicted to wine or alcoholism. You have to teach what is good. And, you, and because of that, you can encourage young women to do the exact same thing, to love their husbands and to love their children. You, need, you, are, you are to be sensible, you are to be pure, you are to be workers at home, you are, you are to be kind and subject to your husbands, in verse 5. <clears throat> and then after that, it talks about what young men are supposed to do. We are also to be sensible. Example of good deeds, purity in doctrine, sound in speech, and many other things. And in one form or the other, we all fit into one of these categories. Um, whether it's the older or the younger, you can define which is which. I'm not going to tell you who you are or how old you are. But regardless of your age, we are called to do these different things. And even though it is specific in this passage, it's to be like older men are to be like this, and older women are to be like this, young men are to be like this, and young women are to be like this. I think as a whole, we can learn from the different, we can all learn from these things. These are all things that we can relate to and work on. For example, um, there's a couple different things that, um, from this passage that stick out to me that I think we all kind of struggle with. You know? Regardless if you're a woman or a man, it's easy to gossip. How easy is it to see um, someone going through something or something happening at school or at church or at work? And it's very easy to fall into talking to your coworker and be like, did you see what Stephanie did today? Or did you hear what happened to Mark or X and Y? I know for a fact that uh, whether I was in AIM or in Sunset even, or even in school, um, I have gossiped before. And it's very easy to find yourself gossiping. That's something we all struggle with. That's not just something that women struggle with. <clears throat> addiction to wine, or I'll make this a, a broader term, addiction to any kind of substance abuse or anything. You can be addicted to your phone or anything. Of course, they didn't have phones back then or any other kind of substances back then, but the, 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 uh, the idea still applies. Do not be addicted to something. Do not be subject to that. That's something we all struggle with, or we, we, that's something that is commonly struggled with, whatever that may be. Being sound in our faith. Are we firm in what we believe? Is our faith, is, is our faith accurate? Or what we, is what we're teaching or what we're preaching accurate to what God is preaching? Purity. That's also a very tough one. I can speak from my own experience that being pure is something that's incredibly difficult, especially in this world. That's something, whether you're a man or a woman, young or old, that, you, that we struggle with and that you will struggle with. Things that we're called to do, we're, we're called to do good. We're called to do good deeds. We're called to be kind, no matter who, who we're talking to, no matter what they believe, we're called to respond in love. 
We're also called to be servants. We're called to be workers at home. And that even goes outside of the house. We're called to be workers at church. Um, we're called to be workers at school. No matter where we're at, we're called to be a servant. And those are just a couple of the different things, I, the similar things I saw in this passage, these things that we're called to do. These are our duties as Christians. It all applies to us. But why do this? Why do these things that we're called to do? Why is it so important uh, for Paul to list out to Titus, I'm like, hey, these are the things we're, we need to do. Why is it important? Well, there's three different reasons I see why this is important. Even in the passage, we see that. So God's word won't be dishonored. In verse 5, read with me in verse 5, I'll read it one more time. To be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. That's one of the reasons why we do this. We do not want to dishonor what God has told us to do. We do not want to dishonor his word. We also do it because we love God. Aside from all the mistakes and the things we do, God is, loves us enough to be patient with us, to show mercy to us. And the Bible talks about if we truly love God, we will follow his commandments. That's reason number two. I feel like we need to take these duties seriously and to really look at our example. So number one, so we don't dishonor him. We don't dishonor his word. Number two, so we, because we love him. And number three, to show all the good faith so that all will adorn God in every respect. In verses 9 and 10, um, it kind of continues what we were reading, but in that context, it talks a lot about bond servants or slaves. Some versions will say slaves. While that doesn't necessarily apply to us today, um, I don't think any of you own slaves or bond servants. If you do, I, um, I, I ask uh, that you talk to someone about that. Um, but even the things it talks about there are still somewhat applicable. It talks about submitting to your masters. I'll read it real quick. Verse 9, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing and not argumentative. Even though we're not slaves or we own slaves, maybe at the workplace with a boss or maybe with an elder or a deacon or a teacher, these are things that we can, be, we can apply to, to an authority figure, to not be argumentative, to be subject to what they have to say. It's difficult, but we're called to do it anyway. And then at the very end of verse 9, or excuse me, at the very end of verse 10, it kind of hits home the third reason why I think these are important to follow. Not pilfering, not showing all... No, excuse me, I'll just read 9 and 10 again. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not, uh, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all the good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. The third reason why we need to take these things seriously, why we need to take these duties seriously, so that we can show all people, all walks of life, all lifestyle, no matter where they're from, or how they grew up. We need to show all the good faith of Christ so that all will adorn God in every respect. Not just a couple respects, but in every respect, they will adorn God. That's why these are so important to follow. All important. Being such living a good Christ-like example is so important. Someone put it to me like this. It's almost like we're living in what's called a spiritual domino effect. For me personally, when I look back at my Christian life, when I think about people that have influenced me and made the biggest impact on me, whether that's in a positive or negative way, I can kind of trace that back. Like, for example, I wouldn't be the person I am today without the love and respect and the, the mercy and the patience that my parents showed me. Even though at times I was probably the biggest brat to ever walk the earth, they still showed me love. They showed me that example of a Christ-like marriage, of a Christ-like leader my dad did. 
But my dad wouldn't be that kind of person. He wouldn't be that kind of father if it wasn't for the people he looked up to. If it wasn't for the Amers that came to Ecuador every year and showed him love and showed him how to be a servant, how to spread the gospel. And even in one in particular I want to mention is a man named Israel Molina. And currently he is a missionary out in Mexico. Um, but he went through the, through the sunset school in Ecuador the same time as my dad, and he became my dad's best friend. And if it wasn't for the example Israel set, he wouldn't be the man he is today. But what about Israel? Who set the example for Israel? For him, he's being from Mexico. He grew up there, but he spent some time in the United States. He lived in a place called Dodge City, Kansas, which I do not recommend visiting. Um, it's a very smelly town. Uh, but he grew up there. He spent some time there. And while he was there, he wasn't a Christian. He didn't grow up Christian. He grew up Catholic. But he wasn't a practicing Catholic. Uh, but in Dodge City, he met a man named Jorge Pineda. And because of that, because of the example Jorge set, Jorge was able to not only befriend Israel, but he was able to ask him to study the Bible. And Israel became a Christian. And I can't trace as far, but Jorge Pineda grew up in Colombia and Venezuela. And if it probably wasn't for his family and the example they set, he wouldn't be the person he is today. So if it wasn't for Jorge, who set the example for Israel, who set the example for my dad, who set the example for me, I wouldn't be the person I am today. And I pray every day that the example I set, whether that's in public or in private, is impacting young people too. How many times, I'm sure we all can raise hands and think of different people that have impacted our lives. Whether that's our parents, a teacher, a coworker, a boss, or a friend, or even a sibling. There's so many different kinds of people that leave an impact on us. And it carries, on, it carries on with us. I'm sure we can even name a couple negative instances that have happened to us that, that hurt our feelings and that in some ways we carry with, that, that caused us trauma that we carry with today. Our example is so important. <clears throat> we, need to be, we need to be this example, not only for those who aren't Christians, but for the younger generation, because they're going to be the future of the church. The Bible calls us to bear fruit and we can't bear fruit if our roots are bad, if our roots are bad. It's so important to see what example we're setting. Oh, excuse me. There we go. I heard this, I heard this saying once. And for a long time, I didn't necessarily understand what it meant. We were on a trip um, in AIM. We went out to Canadian, Texas, I think. It was either Canadian, Texas, or Clovis, New Mexico. Um, but as we were leaving, we spent the weekend there kind of serving the congregation and getting to know them. And as we were leaving, leaving one of the elders came up onto the bus who had, who had known our administration for a long time. And he says this every year uh, to the different AIM class uh, that comes, but I think it's important. He says, you can count the seeds in an apple, but you can't count the apples in the seeds. I'm going to say that one more time. You can't count the seeds in the apple, but you can, you, wait, you can count the seeds in the apple, but you can't count the apples in the seed. And for a long time, that didn't make sense to me. I didn't understand what that meant. And then once I talked about it with Pat, who's one of the administration at AIM, what that meant, it was this idea of like bearing fruit. He's like, you have no idea what God's going to do through you, the different people you're going to impact. And it's like the only, he, <clears throat> excuse me, and the only way we can set that example and, and bear good fruit and see the different apples come from that tree is by the example we're setting. Are we being, are we being, excuse me, are we being kind to people? Are we doing good deeds? Or are we gossiping? Are we dealing with addiction to different substance abuses or different things in our lives? Are we being servants at home or in church? 
Are we being loving fathers? Are we being loving mothers? Are we being good husbands and good wives? Am I, are you being good sons or daughters? Are you being a good worker? Are you being a good deacon, a good elder? Or whatever it may be. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, if you want to turn there with me. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, talks a little bit about this idea in a different light. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. It reads, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become saltless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under, underfoot by men. Verse 14, For you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill, and that cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now we could spend a long time on these, two, on, on these passages alone. I've heard many sermons and read different books that are just based on the, these two examples right here. But Christ is calling us to be salt and light to the, to the world. When it comes to salt, we use salt, one, to preserve things, to add flavor to things. It's kind of the idea uh, Christ is saying here. It's like you need to make this flavorless world full of flavor. You need to preserve these people. Or in the light, I don't know if y'all have ever been into a room or outside where it's been so dark you can't see the hand, your hand right in front of you, but it's kind of scary. I, I don't want to live in a world that's full of darkness. I don't want to run into different things or hurt myself. That's why it's important to carry around with you a flashlight or something that will light your path because it, it, it reveals all things. Light is warm. Darkness is cold. We are called to be the light and the salt of the world. And if we can't accomplish that goal, it talks about that in verse 13, if, you are, if, you're, if your salt becomes tasteless, what, use, what good is it for? I don't know about you guys, but do any of you keep salt that doesn't work in your home? I don't think so. If you did, what would you do with it? You would just throw it out. We cannot lose our purpose. And when it comes to light, at the very end of the passage, it talks about this. So, so, verse 16 says, So let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We must let our light shine so that everyone in this world can see our good works. Not, they, don't, they don't need to see our good works for, for us. We don't need to let that get to our head. We don't need to have a big head about that. But we want people to see our good works, our good example, so that they may know that there's a God, so that we can glorify God through that. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2 talks about this same idea. It's like, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's very easy to, to look like the rest of the world here. It's very easy to become saltless uh, or to have our light put out. But Christ is calling us to be transformed by the constant renewing of your mind. Constant renewing of your mind. Yes, Christ calls us to these different duties to do. Um, no, matter, no matter our age, we all have a, a place in this world. We all have a, a role to play. But he knows that's going to be a difficult thing. So it's a constant, everyday thing. We need to constantly renew ourselves. We can't think that we've, we've, met, we've reached the pinnacle of being a Christian uh, just because we did one good thing. It's a constant battle. Because one day, you're, you might be able to be a, a good servant. You might feel the energy to, to serve someone. And then the next day, you're like, I don't feel it today. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to do this thing. I don't want to preach. I don't want to go out and door knock. You're going to feel like that someday. That's why it's constantly important to renew your mind, to prepare your bodies as a living sacrifice for God. <clears throat> it's a challenge. And that takes us back to Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. 
1 through 8. So again, I ask, how important is our example? How important is our example? I've not been blessed with having kids of my own yet, but I've been able to have two younger sisters who I grew up with. And many times I failed as a brother in setting the example. I think I told the story, I think, last week. But one time in middle school, I, <clears throat> I had a bit of a potty mouth. And, but at, um, at, it wasn't really a big deal to me. At home, I just didn't say anything. But at school and everywhere else, I would let my, my mouth fly. That was the example I was setting. That's who I was. And then one day during the lunch period, I, unbeknownst to me, my sisters were in that lunch or in the lunchroom with me. They had just started middle school. And they had heard me um, say some words that um, weren't the best. And I remember turning around and seeing them um, and their reaction on their faces was met, was met with such disappointment. And for a long time, they were, their mindset became, well, if my older brother is doing this, my older brother is saying these things, then I can too. And that was the first time I, I can really recall the memory uh, seeing how impactful my example is. So in conclusion, I want to challenge us. I want to challenge us as a church to be salt, to be light, to not lose our saltiness and not let anyone dim out our light. I challenge us to be constantly renewing our minds, to not look like the world, to not be conformed by it. I challenge us to take the time to build our relationship with God, because that's the only way we're, able, we're going to ever be the example we're called to be. If you're not building your relationship with God, then you're not being filled with anything. I challenge you to surround yourself with good company, with Christ-like people. Again, we're called to go out into the world. We're called to, to be in the, the midst of these non-Christian people. And that's still good. Jesus did that. He sat with sinners. He talked with the people that the society deemed like not good. But he still did it. But Christ didn't let them change him. He changed them. And that's what we need to do too. I challenge us to look at Titus 2 and the, the qualifications it asks for us, for the duties it calls us to. And I challenge us to really look at what we're not doing well. And if you're doing some of these great that's awesome. I want to encourage you to keep doing that. But if you feel like you're not, you feel like you're not being a servant, if you feel like you're not being pure, if you feel like you're not being a good husband or a good wife or a good son or a good daughter, I challenge you to really ask yourself that question and do whatever it takes to change that. Because like we said, this is a duty that Christ has given to us. It's something that we're required to do. It's not something that's so flippant. It's something that we need to do, not only to benefit ourselves, but to benefit everyone around us. To set the example so that that spiritual domino effect can keep going and more lives can be touched. I once again, one, I one, excuse me, I once again want to end with, that, with the analogy I gave. You can't count the seeds in an apple. You can count the seeds of an apple, but you can't count the apples in the seeds. If you feel like you're not, being, you're not living up to the duties <clears throat> and the requirements Christ is calling you to do, I encourage you to come up here and to give your life to Christ through the waters of baptism. I challenge you to talk to someone. I challenge you to reflect on your lives and see what you're, uh, see what you're doing right and what you're not doing wrong. Again, not for the benefit of just yourself, but for the benefit of people and for the benefit of God's kingdom. If you would come forth as we stand and as we sing. It's so sweet to, to trust in